This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Well, we're into session number four already, and today we're talking about or this session, Effective Service for the Master, How to Be an Effective Missionary. And the, the launching point for um, today's, this morning's session will be Acts chapter 13, the first 12 verses, and we'll go through that in, in quite a bit of detail in a minute. But, you know, this thing about being an effective missionary, what does it mean to be an effective missionary? We have to be careful how we define effectiveness. Uh, Does effective mean that we've baptized a certain number of people or led a certain number of people to be baptized, to uh, profess faith in Christ and to uh, join the ranks of the church? Maybe. But maybe not. Because... Our goal as missionaries is first to present the message that Christ has given us, the three angels' messages, the gospel in, their, in, in its entirety. But we want to make sure that we're not doing anything, or we're doing all that we can, maybe is the positive way to say it, to make sure people understand what we're trying to communicate to them. It is possible, and I have seen it, where we're preaching the gospel in a mission setting, cross-cultural setting, people are responding. But what they're hearing, and what they're understanding, may not be what we're intending them or hoping that they hear. That's why it is so important that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower our message, number one. But the gift of the Holy Spirit does not eliminate, or what's the better word, it does not um, take away our responsibility to do all we can, humanly possible, to make sure that people understand what we're trying to communicate. Did you follow that? We have to do all we can. You know, um, and I think one of the challenges that we have is we've seen conversion as an event, and conversion is event. Surrender to Christ is an event the greatest event in the life of a person, a person that doesn't know Christ, they surrender to Christ. But conversion does not stop with the event. It, it began long before the person, as the pen of inspiration says, long before many times a person makes an immediate surrender to Christ, the Holy Spirit has been working on his or her heart for a long time. And then when a person gives his heart to Christ, especially in a cross-cultural mission setting, that change that takes effect should not stop when the person surrenders to Christ. Many times we as missionaries see the event of baptism as the end, but really it's just the beginning. And in order to be effective missionaries, we can understand that. We need to understand that. Why? Because, uh, imagine with me, how many here like mangoes? Yeah, I love mangoes, especially grafted mangoes, you know, the kind that are really big and juicy and no strings. And I can just taste one now. Uh, And 
you, a mango tree, a grafted mango tree, produces these beautiful fruit. You know, and, but say a storm comes along and the mango tree breaks off. That grafted mango tree that produces this beautiful fruit breaks off. The tree begins to grow again. It's the tropics. Things grow well. What kind of mangoes is that tree going to produce? Is it, are they going to be grafted mangoes? They're going to be standard mangoes. Why? Because the stock, the roots, are just standard, normal stock. And if we were to kind of draw this analogy out a little bit to the work of a missionary, the, the people that we're seeking to win to Christ have a whole background. Roots, so to speak. Things that they've learned from their childhood. Cultural things that often interfere with the gospel. And if we're not careful... If we're not careful and we see uh, conversion as only an event, when the storms of life come, when challenges come for people that we've sought to win to Christ, guess what happens to the, the Christian fruit? It goes back to the, the old way, to the, the old fruit from the roots that have not been fully transformed yet. Uh, and that's why in our church... We have a big problem with, and in mission circles, with, with, with what is called syncretism. The mixing of Christianity with old traditions. Because we as missionaries haven't always been as thorough as we can. Now, again, above and beyond and below and around everything we say is the Holy Spirit's work to change a heart. But that does not negate on our part, the need of being thorough. I'll give an example, a, a real example. This was in Thailand. Um, my wife and I were missionaries there for five years. And we were living in a city called uh, Nakonsuan, the city of heaven. Is that right? It means the city of heaven. And um, one day, uh, well, our daughter kept getting sick. And... Uh, well, she was just a little baby then. And the, the lady that worked in our house, worked with help my wife clean and, and do other things, uh, Big Sister Sally was her name. And uh, she said to me, Mark, I'm going to go to uh, someone and give a, I want you to give a sacrifice to the spirits because your, um, your daughter's getting sick because the spirits are upset. This is a new house. And uh, you haven't done the, the you're, the, you're the first people to inhabit here. And so I just think we need to give, you need to give sacrifice to the spirits. Then everything will be fine. And so I said, big sister Sally, we, we believe in God. We don't, we don't practice that. So, um, you know, as a Christian missionary, I, I did not put much stock in that. And I still don't believe, you know, don't put much stock in that. There's no power in the spirits. However, there is an enemy, Satan, who, who does have some power. Is that not right? And so I, I kind of just pushed it off, and I told her, you know what? I said, uh, please don't do that. She said, well, Mark, if you don't do it, she's very sweet. She said, but if you don't do it, maybe I'll do it for you. I'll go and do it for you. And I said, well, if you do, and I was very gentle with her. I said, if you do, we'll have to let you go because we, we just don't believe in that. We know God's going to take care of us. 
Well, the next day, um, our, our daughter got terribly sick. Oh, I just, I was, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I was angry with God. Why did God allow this to happen? And, you know, big sister Sally's just shaking her head. I told you, when are you going to let me go to the spirit, uh, do the spirit sacrifice for you? And um, I, it was just the most frustrating time for our, our, our daughter got a thrush infection in her mouth. So she couldn't, she was just a baby. She couldn't nurse. She couldn't eat. And she just cried and cried and cried. The little baby lost weight, you know, and you're worried about um, dehydration and, and things like that. Oh, I struggled for, for days. Lord, why did you allow this to happen? And I'm trying to witness to this lady who knows nothing about you. Um, to make a long story short, I think the Lord taught, me a, a, taught us a big lesson. You know, I, I overlooked and minimized her worldview. Because I knew that that wasn't the truth. And I knew it wasn't biblical. And I knew that God could, had all power. But the Lord taught me very, very well. You know, the enemy is there. He has power. And the first thing we should have done when she said that was prayed. Amen? And ask God to reveal to her and through the healing of our daughter uh, that he has more power than the spirits and more power than, uh, yeah, than the spirits that she wanted to sacrifice to. So eventually our daughter got better, but that lesson stayed on my heart. And all the years since that we've done mission work, when a person stops me and says, hey, you know what, Uh, whether I'm in a Muslim country or in a Buddhist country or in a Hindu country, people believe what they believe for a reason. And for them, at least to a point, it works. Do you understand? For them, at least to a point, it works. And if we're going to be effective missionaries, we have to not minimize what people believe, but show how God presents such a better alternative in his word and through the plan of salvation. Amen? So I just effectiveness is not to be measured by numbers. Effectiveness is to be measured by lives truly changed. By people who intelligently understand the gospel. And I didn't say have a degree or, or be studied, you know, learned or scholars. That's no. But people need an intelligent faith. faith. They need to know what they believe when they come to Christ. And so effective missionaries, I believe, do that. So today we're going to talk about what it means to be, or this session, what it means to be an effective missionary. And you've heard this uh, saying or this quote before from Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And of course, Jim Elliott paid the ultimate price. He was a martyr in the 1950s in, in Ecuador. And I'm sure many of you uh, know that story. His, his wife uh, continues to be uh, an influential Christian uh, author and speaker today. So let's go to this topic of being uh, an ineffective missionary from Acts chapter 13. And I'd like to read it for you. And then we'll go right into the lessons drawn from it for being an effective missionary. Acts 13, 1 to 12. 
Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And then they arrived in Salamis. I'm sorry, when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. In the synagogues of the Jews, they also had John as their assistant. Now when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from, from the faith. And this is important. We'll, we'll talk about this verse uh, in some detail. Then Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is so full of meaning for missionaries, being effective missionaries. So, First of all, in overview, Barnabas and Saul are chosen by God and sent by the church. So here again you see this link between uh, God's choosing, but he uses the church to send. So effective missionaries need to be linked to the people of God. You know, many times we think, We can do things um, better on our own. But when it comes to mission work, it's always good to be linked. Now, it doesn't mean, um, you know, when I say linked to the people of God, the body of believers who are praying for us, who are supporting us. And it is through the church, as we learned in an earlier lesson, through the church that God even um, taught Saul. Jesus met Saul on the road. He could have, when, when Saul asked Jesus, what do you want me to do? Jesus told him, go into town, it will be told you what to do. Jesus didn't tell him. That's right. Jesus did not tell him, um, you're going to be a, an apostle, you're going to be this, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. He sent him to the church, and Jesus taught the church, and the church taught Saul what to do. Very interesting. So Barnabas and Saul now experience the same thing. They're chosen by God. God speaks to the prophets and says, send out Saul and Barnabas for the work that I've chosen them. So, so the call is general, right? But when we're called to do mission service, cross-cultural mission service, and any other form of ministry, God chooses us for specific tasks. And each of you, each of us, has a place in God's vineyard. Amen. And a place that only you can fill. Then when they went out, they preached in the synagogues of the Jews. So they went out and they preached. They did the best they knew how to do. They started where there was an opening, and they began to preach. And they came upon a false prophet who was practicing, and we used this word just a few minutes ago, syncretism. 
or mixing the religion of God with false religions. He was, he was a sorcerer. And we're going to, well, we can, we can talk about it now. You know, um, there's a lot of that in, in every religion. Um, but it happens also in Christianity, where people are mixing, um, well, New Age. I, there's, even, there's even, yeah, there's even, even some other things. And I know it's a little sensitive, but I, I'll go ahead and, and say it. Well, no. Um, we worked for many years in a Muslim setting, and uh, it's a very difficult, as you know, very dangerous place, especially to converts, to, to, to work. And so many people say, well, you know what? If you're going to be an effective missionary, and we're talking about effectiveness, you need to go to the mosque and pray with them. So that they, well... You can understand the human reasoning there. The problem is, what is the person that you're trying to convert to Christ understanding by what you're doing? Are they not understanding that you've come over to their side? So, when, when to, it, it, the studies of, of this form of... of Ministry have shown that it really isn't <clears throat> that that effective because it is mixing God's system with another system. The most effective is what, and what Paul said: "I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified." Amen. Now that needs to be done with much tact and much, and sometimes secrecy, but we need not compromise the gospel in order to be effective. The, God, the power is in the gospel, not in the messenger. So, so he was practicing syncretism. We'll talk about that a little more. But the proconsul, this man is, is touched by what he's hearing. And he wants to hear from uh, the disciples. He's being drawn to the message. But this false prophet wanted to discourage him. And one of the main things that pulls people... Oh, who are touched by the gospel that we're trying to reach in cross-cultural missions, pulls them back from accepting Christ, is the entourage. The people around. The people who begin to whisper into the ear. Family members. It's a difficult decision that many people have to make. If we're going to be effective missionaries, we need to anticipate that. And I'll just tell you, having lived in a Muslim setting for many years, um, one thing that we told our church is, you have got to be family to people who come in. At least, at least, at least temporarily, you have got to be prepared to play the role of family members. Because, and, and seek to work reconciliation. And that means, you know, in the West here, we think, well, we preach the gospel, we let the people do with it what they will. They come forward to be baptized, and that's it. No, that's not it. When people in, certain, in very social settings and social countries come to the, to, and social places come to the gospel, their, their main concern many times is, how do I move out of this circle where I am into this circle of believers? Because the, here in the West, we can come to Christ, we can come to the church, and we can stay within our family setting. But for many people in other parts of the world, they've got to make a choice between... 
where they are now, and this message. And so they look at the message, and they say, that's true. I believe in this Christ. I want to follow him. But then they look at the body of believers, and they see fragmented, a fragmented group that does not do for them what the family does. And they, they hold back and say, well, wait a minute. Because to them, to become a part of the body of Christ should mean that they receive a level of support that they're missing. I'll, I'll give you an example. For a Muslim, the family is the bank. The family is the guarantor of the marriage. The family provides, when, there's a, when the children need uh, help, you go to the family. I mean, everything, you know, here in the West, we have a bank. You go to the bank if you need money. In a Muslim setting, you go to the family. In, uh, when, you, um, when someone is sick, the family comes around. Here, that's possible. People are working, people are busy, and it's, it's just different. And so if a person coming from a setting like that comes to the church, and they see that I may not get this support, they're saying, you know, the message that they're preaching is good, but they're really not, I don't see it. Are you understanding? And so it, it's so important that when people are drawn to the message that, that, that we as missionaries seek to, to do what we can to help people in their faith journey. And that may mean that we, we need to do a little more than we're accustomed to doing here. And finally, Paul, in this outline, Paul rebukes Elymas, Bar-Jesus, and the proconsul is convicted. He believes from what he has seen. So the veil is drawn aside here. We see that spiritual powers are struggling. When we go as missionaries, we become fully aware of the fact that we're fighting a spiritual battle. We're fighting the enemy on his turf. But also we see in this message, in this uh, chapter, the power of God and the power of his word to convert. And again, we'll see in the next session that um, we, we need to remember the power is in the message, not in the person. The power is in the message, not the person. Uh, the unseen struggle. Look at what the pen of inspiration says. Not without a struggle does Satan allow the kingdom of God to be built up in the earth. The forces of evil are engaged in unceasing warfare against the agencies appointed for the spread of the gospel. And these powers of darkness are especially active when the truth is proclaimed before men of repute and sterling integrity. This is what, this, thus it was when Sergius Paulus, the deputy of Cyprus, was listening to the gospel message. The deputy had sent for the apostles that he might be instructed in the message that they had come to bear. And now the forces of evil, working through the sorcerer Elymas, sought with their baleful suggestions to uh, turn him from the faith and to thwart the purpose of God. I think that's clear. I'm going to keep moving because I don't want to get bogged down like yesterday. But we're not ignorant of the enemy's devices. Thus the fallen foe ever works to keep in his ranks men of influence who, if converted, might render effective service in God's cause. But the faithful, we could say effective gospel worker, need not fear defeat at the hand of the enemy, for it is his privilege to be endued with power from above, to withstand every satanic influence. Amen? So the first key of effectiveness for the missionary is to be endued with the power of God. You will feel the attacks of the enemy, and you will feel targeted at times. 
Uh, the sorcerer who had heard truth had closed his eyes to the evidences of, the gospel, of gospel truth, and the Lord in righteous anger caused his natural eyes to be closed, shutting out from him the light of day. This blindness was not permanent, but only for a season, that he might be warned to repent and seek pardon of the God whom he had so grievously offended. The confusion into which he was thus brought made of no effect his subtle arts against the doctrine of Christ. The fact that he was obliged to grope about in blindness proved to all that the miracles which the apostles had performed and which Elymas had denounced as a sleight of hand were wrought by the power of God. And finally, because of this, Sergius Paulus was convicted uh, and convinced. And then we're going to run through some keys to effective service. But let me just tell you another story quickly so to, to illustrate this point. Um, so we're working in, um, in this 96% Muslim country in West Africa. And we've been working with a young man who's really, really smart. He'd been coming to our school um, and really intelligent, just, just kind of guy that we, we were trying to teach him a trade, and he was, we sent him to someone to learn um, how to make cane furniture. He, he, I was with him one day, and he looked at that, and he looked at this master that had been working for years. He said, you know what? I can do that. Now, he'd, he'd only seen it two or three times. He, he'd figured out the whole process, and the next day, or not the next day, it was like the next week, he, he said, come over to my house. And so I came over to his house, and he said, look at that furniture. I said, hey, did the master make it? He said, no, I made that. And I said, how did you do that? So how did you learn so fast? He said, well, he said, what I did is I stayed after work, and I took apart what he had done. And I figured it out. And there's a long, those of you know, there's a long process to making cane furniture, to curing the wood, to straightening it, uh, to you know, soaking it in water. I mean, what, well, I've got the steps backwards and messed up. But anyway, um, those are all steps. And he had it all figured out, applying heat and, and getting it bent and then tying it, nailing and tying. He was just super smart. But he was also known, his, his, his name was, his nickname around town was Pepper, like hot pepper. Because he's, he left a sting. He was known as a thief, and we didn't know this, but he was known as a thief, and he's pretty good. Uh, a little bandit is probably not a, a mischaracterization. So anyway, we were working with this young man, and he was you know, coming to church, and we had new, new, a new family come and join the team there. And one day, I don't know what it was, he got upset at something. He didn't come back to school anymore. He was in high school. School bored him. Super intelligent, but school bored him. So he left the school, uh, our little mission school there, and he stopped frequenting us. And, and uh, So, you know, we gave him space. We'd saw, see him around town, and he'd come around every once in a while. One day, we came home from church, and the new missionaries that had been there for just, you know, they come with all their stuff. You know, you, as a missionary, you sell all your stuff. You, you, you leave home. You say goodbye to loved ones. And, and, uh, and then you buy these pieces of equipment that you think you're going to need, and you come with everything in your... And it, I've seen it again and again with new missionaries. We went through it ourselves. You, you, your little treasure, your little mountain of treasure, your little mound of treasure that you brought with you, I mean, that's precious to you because it's like the only little piece of home you have left. And, the, you know, your computers and your, and your video cameras, and you, you need all that for the work, you know, you think. And so they're just there. And we come home from church, and their house is empty. Someone's broken in. 
And when I say their house is empty, not really, but all, a lot of their stuff is stolen. I mean, thousands and thousands of dollars worth of stuff. And so we contact the police that day, and, and uh, they uh, do an investigation. And now it's a convoluted kind of thing and a lot of uh, corruption involved. We weren't involved in corruption, but they found out that it, this guy had led a little gang that uh, had broken into the house and, and stolen. And uh, he, they, they, the, over time, they were able to arrest everyone except this guy. And he was free. I don't know if he was paying off the police or the soldiers or what, but he was free and he was, he was around, kept moving around. Um, no one ever really saw him. He'd move around at night, I guess, and he was living in a close-by village, not in our city. But to make a long story short, um, it was months later that uh, he was able to be arrested and put in jail. Now, I went to the court, the trial, and he was, he was, he was sentenced to, in absentia, his, his little gang was there, but in absentia, he was sentenced to five years of uh, prison. Um, when he got arrested... He did, uh, I think, three days in jail, and he got out. So now everybody on the team is worried because they're like, oh, man, this guy's dangerous. And, and he is because in the country we live, there were a lot of bandits, and, and you know, bandits would come at nighttime with machine guns, climb your wall, tie up people in the house. And, and because they were often um, linked to the soldiers or police, um, you know, they could stay all night and, and there were terrible, you know, just terrible, terrible stories. And I began to worry for my family. It wasn't the first time we'd had um, fears like this, or I had fears like this. But I began to worry, and, and um, many of us did, on the, or several of us on the team were, were quite worried at what he uh, could do. Cut this short, I, we, we prayed, we prayed. He, he'd gotten out again, and we, I went to the police, and I said, hey, Aren't you guys going to try to arrest him again? The police said, uh, well, we, we can't seem to find him. So we prayed one morning in team worship, and one of our teammates was going to the, take a taxi, and he saw the young man in a car. The young man saw him and slipped back in the car. And uh, so one of our teammates went and um, grabbed him. Another teammate was there. They grabbed him. They sent him off to jail. And he got out you know, not long after that again. But he had been, he had been uh, practicing some of this sorcery and, and uh, magical arts to, to think, to, to somehow be, how do I say, uh, so that he would not get caught. You know, he, he thought that he could go to the medicine man and the medicine man could give him a potion or put a band around his arm and he wouldn't get caught. And, and for him, it, it worked, so he thought. Um, we fi- he was finally arrested. He came to us later and said, you know, your God is very powerful. You know, I was, I was moving around and people didn't know, I mean, or people didn't know how to catch me and, and I was sure they wouldn't catch me. And he was, I don't know if he was working with police or soldiers, but he sh- certainly was, was free. But he said, your God is powerful. And, and he came, you know, he, he never ever came back to studying the Bible or Christ. But... We need to remember, remember as missionaries that if we're going to be effective, we're fighting a spiritual battle. And we must trust God to overcome the attacks of the enemy, as Paul did in this case. And, and people will be converted and convicted through that. And people were, as they watch, you know, many people watch, 
and, and from a distance, and they're drawn to Christ through uh, things like this. So what, is, what are the keys to effective service? First of all, missionaries must work in collaboration with others. Paul did not go, and Saul did not go out by themselves. They were by, by himself. He was working with Barnabas. And they also had an apprentice. Who was the apprentice? John, that's right. And John uh, was kind of scared and took off, but uh, he came back and became an effective missionary. Effective missionaries follow God's directions unequivocally. You know, some of God's directions seem a little out of date, especially when you compare them to modern missiological principles. If we're going to be effective, we're going to trust God's counsel and follow it and trust to leave the results with God. Amen. And when we moved to this particular city, people told us you'll never start a church there because it's just a very difficult place to work. First of all, you're in a difficult country and you've got difficult situation. You're working with a difficult people group. You're just not going to be able to do it. I'm happy to tell you eight years later, there's a school with 300 students and a church with 50 members. Amen. And that does not come from the messengers. It is because when we follow the counsel of God, we cannot go wrong. We cannot go wrong. So, and, and, and finally, uh, well, not finally, but I do want to underline this. An effective missionary will not take lightly the power of the enemy and the spiritual struggle that exists against the powers of darkness. If you pray once a day or twice a day here when you're in the enemy's stronghold, pray three times a day, pray five times a day. Because, you know, the Bible says that... Satan knows that he has a short time. He's gone out to make war with the remnant of the seed of the woman. And he knows that every bit of territory he seeds is one bit closer to his final destruction. So he will do everything he can to discourage, to distract, to destroy, or to send you home. Because... He does not want to cede any ground to Jesus. So we we need to realize that we're in a spiritual struggle and things will happen that scare us. But we need to find our strength and our courage in Jesus Christ. Amen? An effective missionary should never compromise principle in an effort to make his job easier. And we've talked about that already a little bit. And an effective servant or missionary remembers that God can transform an attack by the enemy into a time when souls are converted to the kingdom of Christ. So what Satan sought to destroy God's people with, what he was trying through the, in this story of Saul, he was trying to keep the proconsul from hearing the gospel through this false prophet. And I've seen it again and again when people come to Christ. You know, I've, I remember one young man that we were working with um, who was coming to Christ. People were never interested in him. He was a little handicapped, so he didn't really have a place in, in um, mainstream society. People kind of ignored him. But as soon as he began to latch onto the gospel and start coming to church and start taking Bible studies, suddenly his people were interested in him from all around, trying to pull him back.
trying to keep him. And, and then the warnings go out. And, and then when you're in a setting of, of a resistant religion, then people begin to plot and to plan against the person and, and maybe against you, the missionary. And that's what was happening to him. So, but, but we need to remember that when people seek to, to do harm, God can take it and turn it and use it as an opportunity to win souls. Because people are watching. And people are watching this gospel that you preach, this thing about Jesus and the Bible that you preach, does it really have power? And when they see God work, they begin to understand, okay, this thing that they're teaching does have power. And then another key to effective service is to come close to the people through entering into their lives. As a missionary, we cannot think that only by preaching will people be won to Christ. We have got to come into their lives. And, you know, it's difficult for us um, to, when people think a different way, when people um, live a different way, when they see the world a different way, it's, it's difficult for us to draw close to them. But we've got to. It's easy for us to kind of draw into our own shell, but we've got to come close to them. They won't, we're, we're how do I say it? We're the guest in their culture and their society, and, and they will welcome us many times, maybe not all to, at all times, but it's our job to go towards them and to learn from them, to take the position of a, learn, a learner. Seek meaningful friendships because you love people. We have to learn to genuinely love people, disinterestedly, not for what they can do for us. Not even, that's exactly what I was going to say, not even that they will convert, but simply because we love them and we want to help them. Genuine love begets love. And people will respond to that. Amen? We just need to invest in people. Help people where they are. Do what we can to enter their lives. One of the first things we were able to do uh, when we arrived in one particular country, the, the uh, country where we lived for 10 years, was we, we had neighbors. They were nice to us. We said hi. They said hi to us. One neighbor said one day, he looked at me. He said, uh, Mr. Coleman, what in the world are you doing here in our country? He said, what are you doing? And I had to come up with an answer. I, well, I'm here as a missionary. I'm here to convert you to Christ. Repent and be baptized. Wouldn't work. So I told him, well, we're here to help, to learn, uh, to help. Um, we'll be you know, doing some um, health teaching and some other things. We're just here be part of the community. And he stopped, and he didn't quite know what to do with that. So he stopped, and he thought, you know, and he shook his head, and, and that was it. But how did we start entering into lives of people? The mortality rate in that country is very high. Um, most people die before their, I think the, the, the age, the average mortality age is 46. 46. So death is a part of life in a way that it's not here. And uh, every few days, every, there's always a, there is a, uh, a funeral. And in, as many of you know, in a very social setting, um, Africa, Asia, South America, it's important to take part in people's lives. When there's someone who dies, to be there. Well, you know, Americans are like, mm, I don't want to go to a funeral. Or, man, this is kind of weird. I don't even know these people. And, but that's not how people look at it there. And so we were just there. 
just there as friends, just there as support. Before long, it took a while, but before long, we were taken as part of the community. A little different, but part of the community. So now they, the people trusted us with their kids. The kids could come over. We trusted them. Our kids could play with their kids. I mean, just it, it, it was beautiful to see that by entering into people's lives, you, you can draw close to them. And that is what gives the opportunity to share the gospel as we uh, draw close to people. And, and I'll just, I have to share one quick story here. Um, and some of you may have heard this. We've, I've told this story before in several venues. But I'm riding on my motorcycle one day, and, and um, well, I'd see, I was coming out of my house, and I had seen this dog that was going by, and uh, it, it looked bad. It was mangy. It was sickly looking. It was wild looking in the eyes. And I was like, you know, what's, what's wrong with this animal? There were some kids coming from the high school. They were in their school uniforms they, in it, that was near our neighborhood. They were, they were walking by, and, you know, this dog was just running down the street and not making a... Well, running down the road, the trail, not making a sound. And so I was busy, and, and I needed to get into town. So I uh, got, hopped on my motorbike, and I'm riding by this, this dog. And uh, I, I had to go. It's a, it's a rocky trail where we live. The roads are unpaved, and, and everything on this road, before you get into town, is this lava rock. So it cuts up the tires of your motorbike. There's these big rocks there. And, and so you can't turn real fast to take off. I'm, I'm looking at this dog because I'm going by him, and I'm like, this dog really looks crazy. And so I'm, I'm not afraid of dogs, but I said, hmm, I better get away from him. So I'm trying to ease. I have a big dirt, dirt bike, but I'm trying to ease so I don't hit a rock and get kicked out, you know, and, and fall. And um, I realize, I'm looking out of the corner of my eye, I'm like, this dog's coming after me. Still not making a word. It's just running right towards me. And I realize that I can't accelerate fast enough to get away from it. And I'm trying to climb this hill. And he's coming. And I jumped. The, the motorbike's still running. I lifted this leg and stood on the stirrup on this side. So now the motorbike's kind of running. And while it's running, the, the dog just dives right into the side of it. And starts tearing it, you know, stuff. And So I jump on the ground. And I'm holding this running motorbike. I'm like, what am I going to do now? And this dog is just, just never made a sound. Just tearing at stuff. And I'm like, wow. And so I send up a prayer. And it's like the Lord says, let the motorcycle drop on him. So I let it go. And the motorcycle is still running. And the, the exhaust pipe's on that side. And it's real hot. And the dog just was able just to squeeze out and take off. And I picked up some rocks, there were rocks all around, and threw at it, and uh, never made a sound, took off. Well, to make a long story short, there's a, a lot more to this story, which I won't tell you, um, but a friend of mine was bitten by that dog and died of rabies uh, later on. Uh, and I got to see the horrible end of my friend's life in the hospital. Uh, terrible thing to behold. But here's the, the point of what I wanted to tell you today. Uh, that dog, now people in Guinea are afraid of dogs. I mean, like, like they could be lions. You know, it's just people are afraid they're of dogs. For good reason, obviously. And that happened in our neighborhood. And there were, you know, we had friends in the neighborhood now. And as soon as that happened, neighbors came rushing out. 
are you okay, Mr. Coleman? Are you, are you fine? You know, and to me, that, you know, these are people who are afraid of animals, number one, and who think that, who believe that evil people can send spirits into animals to kill a person or to attack a person. But in spite of all of those fears and all of those beliefs, because we had become part of the community, because God had enabled us to enter the lives of people during this time of when most people would say, go back into their courtyards or in their houses and say what happened to that foreigner down the road. Instead, they, they came out to help. To me, that was a blessing because we had been able to draw close to the people and become a part of the community. And then we also take the attitude of a, of a learner to be an effective missionary. And this I can't emphasize enough. Stay at the job of learning how to be a missionary day after day after day. You don't learn to become a doctor overnight. You don't learn to run a, a precision machine in a factory in a week. It takes showing up at work every day. And if, if a missionary wants to be effective, he's got to stay at the job every day. And, you know, in between these glorious events and these stories and these miracles you see, there's just an everyday plotting, learning the language, making mistakes, and getting up when you don't feel like it. There's malaria, your, your, your head's about to explode, and you've got a fever, and you're, you're dizzy. Those are the days you just have to struggle through, show up day after day after day at work to be an effective missionary. And finally, to nurture your faith in God. Believe that through it all, even though you live very difficult and challenging days, to believe that God is working. If you do that, you and I, we can be effective missionaries. Amen? Amen. That's what Paul did, and the history is there for us to see. Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. Now at this time, on this topic of being and effective missionary. I'm going to give my colleague Arnold uh, a few moments. And we're going to let you out on time today. We've got 10 minutes. All right. Good. I feel like I need to start with prayer. Father in heaven, I just thank you so much for being in this room just now. To be an effective missionary really means putting our hand in your hand on a moment-by-moment basis. And Lord, I just ask that you would take my hand just now. In thy name we pray. Amen. Um, I don't, what I tell you today, I hope doesn't discourage you, um, but rather encourage you. I remember um, I told you my I grew up here in the Seattle area. My father owned Golden Stitch Furniture Factory. My brother owned Seattle Furniture Factory. And I started something called Master Stitch Furniture Factory. And, and the reason I'm telling you that is because when I went to Cambodia, Adventist Frontier Missions asked me to manufacture furniture among the poorest of the poor. And I remember... Um, the struggles in that. And... And Satan attacking. I remember the first load of furniture we built. When I, time I got it to Phnom Penh, the roads were so bad, it was all scratched and beat up and wear marks in the fabric and stuff. 
we learned right away we had to pack it much differently than you would in the United States, putting it in a truck, throwing a blanket over it, and sending it down the road. Um, Discouragement. Imagine getting there, and people have this order, and it's all beat up when it gets there. I had to bring the whole load back, apologize, bring the whole load back, refinish it, fix it, pack it with cardboard, cushions, mattresses. I mean, you can't believe it. And then drive excruciatingly slow and, and deliver the product. How did that affect six people, six people's lives that I started this little furniture manufacturing with? I remember Niceum. She sewed. Her name was Niceum. 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 Oh, Got to be there. My welder, Luan Penn, he kept hanging around this sewing machine all the time. They became the first Adventist, Seventh Adventist couple in that, in that village. The things that we did, but I remember coming back from delivering a load of furniture for these people and the difficulty selling furniture in a country, they, you know, it's manufactured here in Cambodia. It can't be any good. All the furniture there was imported from Thailand or China or whatever. Can't be any good. So I was up against this really fast, high-speed manufacturing in another country, and we were making high-quality furniture. I remember dropping off a load of furniture and I was driving like, a, like anything to get to the, to the ferry dock. And it was 6 o'clock, 6.05, pulled onto the ferry dock, and the ferry was on the other side. And, and the reason I tell you is that was the last ferry of the day. And there's about three kind of, three kind of uh, hotels you can have there, Mark. A 50-cent hotel, you've got to bring your own sheets and disinfect it. Then you have the, Tim's been there, he's, he's smiling. De Laos. Yeah. <laughs> De that's, that's a good word. Bring the rid with you. Then you got the, the $5 hotel, which I was hoping for. They have a fan. You'll need it. But you know, we have little faith. And when God is with you, who can be against you? And I remember going, Lord, I, I drove as fast as I could. I was delivering furniture for people. I'm teaching how to make furniture. And the ferry's gone. And I'd like to sleep in my own bed tonight. And I remember I had about a two-minute pity party. And I looked, and that great big huge ferry was coming back this way. I got on the ferry... I didn't pay that day because the lady had already left. The toll booth lady had already left. It brings tears to my eyes to remember how much God loves me and how much he loves you. It cost the country of Cambodia no less than $500 probably to bring that ferry back to get me. Drop that gate down. I drove up with my vehicle onto that ferry dock. I mean, onto the, onto the platform. And I went upstairs and said, you know, why? And he said, he said, do you remember when we first got this ferry? 
And we didn't understand that what oil left engine meant, and you took your time to explain. You took your time to tell us everything about this boat in, in Khmer, and it's written in English because it was donated from a country who put the whole manual in English for them. Imagine that. Imagine speaking Khmer, and your letters look like squiggles. I drew a little diagram of the whole boat for them. And I put down on there, how did it maintain and take care of this thing? And they remembered that. You know, don't ever tell them everything about the boat. I remember the captain, he always let me sit in the cockpit of this, this, uh, this ferry. And he goes, I got to go to the head. And I, I'll tell you that differently. It's not, not exactly that in their language. Bangkun, you got to know that one. Kinyam trokado bangkun, netbak masini. And I said, no, 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 I don't know how to drive it. He said, you know all about it. Just get over here. Huge machine. I just held on to the things while he was going, please, Lord, get him back here quick. But he came back for me. And the miracle was not because, not for me, because it has two sets of controls. One this way, when you back out, you watch, the, watch where you're going this way, and you back right out into the river. And then you, there's another set of controls over here. And generally, when you back out, you grab the other set of controls because you want to see where you're going. Well, he was still in the middle of the river. He was still in the middle of the river, looking this way. And that was a miracle to me. He said, I saw you, and he said, my heart went out to you. Amen. And he came back. I wish I hadn't complained. For three minutes, while that ferry was pulling away, I was sitting there complaining, Lord, I'm doing your, what you want me to do here. Instead of saying, praise the Lord, I get to sleep in another 50-cent hotel, I get to disinfect the floor, the bed, the toilet, and the shower. The community shower. You've been there, Mark? Yeah. I'm not trying to, to, to make you feel anything except that when you go, never forget that God is right there with you all the time. And as we've decided to go again out, those people who prayed for me, I know, I could feel it. I remember saying, I don't want to be spit on anymore. I was, I was spit on by people. But I would do it all over again to hear someone say, because you came. Jesus is in my heart. I know Jesus. And that's what it's really worth. It's worth the, all that. And I'm just going to turn the time back over to Mark. Amen. And again, you know, being an effective missionary, he illustrated so well because he took the time to draw a whole diagram of the boat. You know, he, those are the kind of things, taking time with people that, that make all the difference in the world, that allow us to enter their lives and be effective missionaries. Okay, we're done for this session. Next session is really interesting. Um, and is God calling you? Some have asked for information. Where can we get information about mission service? Here are just a few. 
We'll have more tomorrow. Here are just a few websites that you can go to for all kinds of mission service. That'll stay up uh, during the break. Uh, God bless you. See you the next session if you, if you stay. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.